Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming two guests to the show. It's kind of a change. Usually, we only have one, but today, it's a twofer. First, we have Derek Ferguson. He's the Global Head of Enterprise Architecture at Fitch Group, Inc., In his current role, he's responsible for the vision and strategic direction from a technology perspective. Derek has an impressive background with extensive experience working in the information services industry. He's also a graduate of DePaul University here in Chicago with a degree in computer science. Joining us as well is Chris Laylor, Head of Technology Enablement and Deployment at Fitch. Jumping from a career heading cloud and compute architecture at Viacom MTV Networks, Chris's organization has led Fitch's migration to the cloud and shutdown of traditional data center services. Chris and Derek will be running us through some of their platforms and patterns they are building to enable innovation across their company. Welcome to the show, Derek and Chris. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And Derek, maybe can we start with you? And for our listeners who aren't familiar with Fitch Group, can you share a little bit more? Sure. So um, Fitch Group is uh, owned by Hearst. Actually, ultimately, it comprises a set of companies. Fitch Ratings is possibly the the best known of the companies. It's uh, one of the big three ratings firms. It has over 8,000 corporate entities, rated over 245,000 debt securities. It's a highly regulated organization, as ratings firms are. You have Fitch Solutions, another one of the Fitch Group companies significantly less regulated than, say, Fitch Ratings. It's also a highly acquisitive organization. It has sort of sub-companies like uh, Credit Sites, uh, Levfin, DVL1, GeoQuant. These are some of the more recent acquisitions and investments that have been made by Fitch Solutions. And we have Fitch Learning, which specializes in financial education, professional qualifications, certifications, that sort of stuff. Fitch Ventures, which makes equity investments in innovative and emerging technology companies, probably particularly relevant for uh, the topic of this podcast. Fitch Bahua, 100% subsidiary of Fitch doing credit ratings in China, and uh, Sustainable Fitch, which is probably our newest company. It's uh, independent ESG data and inside ESG being a very big trend in the industry right now. Other points to note, we are uh, one of the uh, recipients uh, from built-in the 2023 best places to work in technology. Uh, We're top 10 amongst large companies in both New York and Chicago. And the company has uh, technology offices in New York, Chicago, and London. Here in Chicago, my organization, besides uh, overall architecture, uh, we're involved in our academic partnerships. We do a program called City Scholars with the University of Illinois down in uh, Urbana-Champaign, which lets the students work part-time in Chicago while they're students. That's a program near and dear to my heart because I, I feel like you know, Chicago's a, a great tech company, as I'm sure you would agree. And, and so much of our talent right down at Urbana-Champaign has gone to Silicon Valley historically. Um, I love the scholars program in terms of helping to build the uh, tech economy here in Chicago. And... Um, then we also partner with um, this past year with the University of Illinois at Chicago to do a uh, annual codeathon, 
specifically University of Illinois at Chicago's uh, Breakthrough in Tech program for uh, women and uh, non-binary people in technology. And we worked with them to uh, build a uh, mobile application for a uh, organization called Vosel, which uh, specializes in educational services to uh, underserved communities. So very involved in uh, Chicago technology and uh, technology environments in New York and Chicago, the other places that were that were located. That's awesome. It's an interesting fact about Chicago. Uh, if you're in business, you're in philanthropy. It's really just part of our culture, right? So you really have to be a good citizen of the city as well as provide good services and goods and products and uh, and it's it's tremendous. That's really awesome stuff, especially with organizations like UIC, which historically is, from my experience, you know, uh, a destination school for many people who uh, they might be the first ones going to college in their family, or they're new to this this country, and uh, it's it's really a tremendous source of talent, right? I think it's probably the most underrated engineering source of talent here in Chicago. I would completely agree with that. And actually for this year, uh, Chris is going to be uh, helping to expand that codathon to New York. And uh, we have a partner in uh, London. So this year will be the uh, Fitch uh, Global Codathon. So we're looking forward to that. That's awesome. Very exciting. Yeah, I myself, I'm excited to get out to Chicago next week. It's been a, it's been a few months, so it's always too long. And we have um as you say, we have a lot of bright engineers from UIC actually, even on my team, and uh, really impressed, um, you know, with the talent that we've seen uh, through both those programs. So it's great, and we're excited. We'll be partnering with Hearst overall to to expand the Codathon program too, as Hearst's a huge backer of uh, many philanthropic uh, organizations, and they saw this wonderful work they did for Vosel, and they they want to continue that and see how we can branch out even further. I think one cool thing at Fitch is we also, through most of our philanthropy, we're focused very much on education, and that's a big thing for Fitch. Obviously, we provide data and knowledge to the financial industry, but also how do you how do you just help move along education and bring these opportunities and financial services to underrepresented groups as well? So that's been a big thing for us, and it's been really cool to see since I've been at Fitch. That's awesome. Congratulations on all of that. It's awesome when we get to talk to people who uh, have that level of commitment to the city, to our communities, uh, not just about doing business or making money. Not that making money is bad, but it's nice when you can do all of the above, right? True. So one of the things we'd love to know more about, right, this journey that you've been on uh, at Fitch over the last three, four, five years, moving from the data center focused, moving to, you know, leveraging the cloud as a strategic tool, right? I think a lot of people moved to the cloud. It was a little bit more of a, you know, cost reduction. I think that's what a lot of people are seeing right now that there, there's a lot of conversations around it. It didn't save us money. Um, I don't think anybody really thought it was going to, but I think some people right, weren't on the same wavelength about the strategic investment and how that's going to pan out. So I would love to hear more about the journey that you've gone on, where it started, how you've made the investments, made the changes, and then how that has provided for you know some substantial growth, not only in the organization, but in, on your teams and how you've demonstrated value to the organization as a whole. Right. Yeah. 
Patrick, I'll take that to start with, um, you know, and, you know, can talk through a bunch of our journey to the cloud, you know, we'll hand over at various points to Derek for some of the, you know, major transformations they've led also in, um, how we build services. And then we're going to talk about some of their more complex patterns they're building now. But as we talk about getting to the cloud in our, in our journey, yeah, about five years ago, we started moving our first, uh, production applications to the cloud and an interesting tack we take, and you see it in a bunch of uh, Silicon Valley companies, is we actually took some of our most sensitive and production critical applications, and they were some of the first to cut over. The theory being that if you can build all of the discipline to automate, build, deploy your most critical systems, everything else is pretty easy after that point, right? You gain a lot of confidence, uh, you know, in, in your move if you once you move those. So I had, um, I had been at Viacom MTV networks for a really long time, uh, actually 17 years, um, most of my career. So I had grown up, I guess, in the uh, tech industry, building and deploying huge scale, uh, websites like MTV.com. So one thing that I learned out of that discipline is really, if you want to enable developers and enable them to innovate you need to automate what you're doing on the system side. They can't be waiting for you to build servers. They can't be waiting for you to buy more disks and get them into your data center because you're running low on storage. If you do those things and you add friction to the development process, you break up a person's ability to actually sit down and do their engineering and figure out the algorithms to support new business functionality or things that really move forward the business, right? So when I came over um, from Viacom, and we have a couple of folks actually uh, from Viacom at Fitch, my purview was to make sure we could, we could again, build and automate all the stuff, but how do we enable our team? And I'll say we moved to AWS quite successfully. We moved some highly regulated systems there. You talked about, um, you know, was it for cost savings? That was fortunately on this side and and my prior company, we, we had talked about that and not found those savings necessarily. Those weren't the advantages. At Fitch, uh, actually refreshingly, even five years ago, we were really much more talking about what do we get by going to the cloud? What are the services available to us that we can use that we don't have to build ourselves so that we can build better technology systems, build better services for our clients, build more services for our clients to grow our business. So, you know, I think for us, it was about what can cloud providers provide us in terms of the service portfolio or for things like database administration or server building, what can they take off our hands so we can, you know, support our engineers and support development and innovation. So, you know, overall it was really successful, uh, when I implemented it with, you know, we, we did have to refactor, a professional services engagement. I came into, uh, that was already engaged by, uh, by Fitch, but, you know, by implementing agile methodologies, like two week sprints to really just every two weeks sit with engineering and business leadership and make sure we were tackling all of the most important things, we were able to get it done. And we were able to, you know, get our consulting timelines back down and all of the things we needed to succeed in the project. Now, interestingly, as we did this, maybe a victim of our own success and building our most secure applications first, I think some of our posture was a little bit too conservative to enable our ancillary businesses. So, you know, Derek ran through a list of our, our businesses and maybe a, a particularly financial services term. But if you look at Fitch ratings, they, they provide debt ratings to the credit markets. 
they are highly regulated by regulators all over the world. We, Fitch Solutions, Fitch Learning, these other businesses, we intentionally keep them separate so that they can develop new things that are not ratings for the financial markets. They can train people. Their domain is not as regulated or as conservative as ours. So honestly, these systems, they, they had more friction than, than maybe we needed to for developers. So I think that's where we took a stop and, and we, we started looking with the Fitch Solutions team of how do we build systems better? You know, how do we how do we make this work uh, for scale and, and handling it? And I think then actually one of our, our head of solutions architecture under Derek and, and myself, uh, gentleman Matt Jones, we partnered with the development teams at Fitch Solutions to deploy what's known as Kubernetes, which is a, a container orchestration platform, which is a really particular term for technology, but it's a platform that lets us encapsulate our services really accurately so they work just the same on development machines, on servers, and it allows us to deploy them very quickly. But what it also allowed us to do is hand over a lot more of the management of this development. Like how do we, again, enable development to own a bit more of their path and innovate. So I think this is, you know, we were talking about what are some platforms for innovation, you know, for us, cloud, and then containerization and Kubernetes, they're, they're very specific technologies. You know, they're really popular in the industry, but again, why they work for us or why they work for us is it was, you know, what are we trying to enable? What was the goal here? And it's about, you know, getting tools in our developers' hands so they can innovate and think about, you know, again, just the business problems. You don't want to you know, pull them back uh, when they're doing that. So that's a bit of a, a crash course summary for me, but um, questions on that, uh, Patrick or Shelley? Yeah. So when you start out, I think there's it's an interesting path of going with the most secure. I think there's a lot of times people go with some of the easier, right, products where it's like, oh, let's let's dip our toe in and let's move that in there. So it's interesting that you started from that perspective. But as you mentioned, moving to more of the flexible, right? So you've got a standard approach. And I think Derek, you know, some of the things that you're working on now are some of the things I think are really interesting. One of the concepts you brought up was the idea that putting guardrails around this. So it's, you've got the challenge historically pre-cloud of like provisioning hardware or maximizing like, Hey, if I got to get the hardware, I'm going to spend as much money as I, I'm allowed to, even though I don't really need it. Uh, Cause I'm probably not going to get a second shot at it. And then the idea of the other opposite is, the unconstrained spend that I've seen uh, many times of like uh, our spend on cloud. And I've had a number of conversations in the last months where people are like, well, would I save more money if I moved to this cloud vendor? And the answer is, are you going to stop spending more money? Right. Cause they'll take whatever you give them. Right. So it's really more about like, uh, you know, I, that concept that you guys shared guardrails lead to freedom to innovate. I think that's really an interesting concept. So if you could explain that a little bit more, I think it'd be great. I was fortunate enough that somebody had given me a copy of the book, uh, Accelerate. I don't know if you've, if you're familiar with that, it's, it's pretty, you know, popular. And so started, in fact, I think I might've bought like 30 copies of that book. I seem to recall that I had them sitting in my office and invited everyone, please come by and take a copy of this book. Cause this is, this is sort of where we went to head. And it's sort of like, difference between you know when folks make their first move to the cloud 
particularly if you if you want to sort of get there, get your feet wet, see what it's about. You you take the software you you have, you make some changes to it, you get it out there, you start learning about it. That next phase is saying, how do I actually switch to sort of cloud savvy software that really makes full use of the platform? So we started taking a, a deeper look at that and trying to figure out, you know, what are some of the the bottlenecks. And what I think you see in a lot of organizations is the conveyor belt between squads, where this squad does their piece, and then it has to go to the next squad who does their piece, then it has to go to the next squad who does their piece, all that sort of stuff. And part of the transformation, it's all sort of like interlinked between the agile transformation, the cloud transformation, the DevOps transformation. All three of those are sort of intended to work hand in glove so that you wind up with squads that own distinct units of functionality. They have ownership of the front end, they have ownership of the services, they have ownership of the database, true microservices, right? So we started taking a look at that against the context of the services that we had, and we uh, developed this architecture called METALS, M-E-D-A-L-S. I'm hoping I won't embarrass myself by not remembering what any of these uh, uh, letters means, but you know, the M is microservices and micro front ends. The E is events. D standing broadly for data, but could specifically be something like a data mesh. A meaning APIs, L meaning low code, and S meaning shared services. So as we started working through this, how can we develop something? And the, the, the touchstone that I always kept coming back to was the Netflix model. That when you log into Netflix, although it may appear to you that you were looking at a single application in the web browser, you're actually looking at a set of applications that are architected from front to back such that you're never, fingers crossed, you're, you're almost certainly never going to go to Netflix and just find, hey, the whole whole kit and caboodle is down because they couldn't maintain that. It has that ability to have one part go down and the, all the rest stay up. You've got teams that are releasing, you know, 20 times a day in some cases because they can do their releases without impacting the rest of the application. So that was the journey that we started on. And in looking at enabling technologies for things like blue-green deployments and to, your, to use your phrase, putting guardrails around things and freeing developers up to just focus on the business logic rather than all of the plumbing code, like the monitoring and the security and all that sort of stuff. That's where we sort of uh, came into contact with service mesh. And that's sort of where we're at in the, in the, in the journey right now. That's awesome. And I'm a big fan of Accelerate. I, I actually know Dr. Forsgren. I think her book is fantastic. Uh, and I think that's uh, when you get into the, uh, you know, the two great tastes that go great together of speed and quality. Right. And that's really what that book is about and how to like elevate the, the, the speed in which you're pushing out code, like you mentioned 20 times a day or whenever, right. Applying like those door metrics to, how healthy is our team? I, I'm curious on the service mesh. So I got two things I'd like to talk about, and I, I want to go into the service mesh. But before we we go there, you know, there's composite apps and and leveraging services and and you know uh, those disparate 
and not disparate, but distinct solutions and the plumbing that's required to communicate between those. I've struggled to see the value where that fits with every application. You know, when you talk about applications that have a certain level of scale, right? Netflix and things like that makes perfect sense. The investment's there. But I've also seen where it's, is there a balance that you've found where it's like, okay, so it, it makes sense to do it on these, but it doesn't make sense to do it on everything. I think we tend to distinguish between static content and dynamic content and rich functionality. So when you look across our businesses, you've got our ratings business, which is, besides being highly regulated, a lot of the content that it publishes is static from the standpoint that a rating is issued, it goes up on the website that is essentially a page. Okay, fine, we're looking at that. That's in front of the paywall. If you look at something like solutions, which is essentially our behind the paywall business, which is like research and depth and all that sort of stuff, here you're dealing with folks who really want to slice and dice the data and get different visualizations and advanced search techniques and all that sort of stuff. That's an inherently more complex dynamic application. In my initial role as head of technology for Fitch Solutions, that was really my primary focus, figuring out how this can be made. And I think, you know, initially, it was an application that because we had not yet fully embraced the cloud paradigm of development, although we were on cloud infrastructure, one of the first things that you start thinking about when you want to make that that true leap with like 12-factor applications and all that sort of stuff is embracing the possibility of failure and thinking how you are going to decompose your application such that the whole thing doesn't come down if one of the pieces comes down. Because with cloud, things are going to get moved around and rehomed and all that sort of stuff constantly. I think it's the complexity of application that, to me, makes the difference. Mm-hmm. If you have an application that's really going to be deep on cloud and needs that scalability, not even necessarily scalability from a standpoint of you've got tons of users, but scalability from a functionality standpoint, that's where I think you really see the dividends. But I know, Chris, if you have anything. Yeah, I think that's pretty dead on, Derek, I, I would say where we do sometimes intentionally simplify is yes if we have a you know, i said i came from a, a background in large-scale websites um, and derek mentioned yeah we have a bunch of static assets around our um, our websites and i think that's where we do when we look at platforms like large-scale websites or those absolutely critical externally facing services we do try to reduce the number of failure potential failure points and sometimes you know even if we're interlinking with more complex patterns like Kafka for eventing and messaging into the stack, we look at where are those integration points and as Derek was saying, you know, can we break those gracefully and make sure that the core sites are very simple and keep running nonetheless and making sure that those technologies are added in an additive way. I think also because we're developing these much, you know, some, some normalized patterns for what our services look like, it does become cheaper uh, for additional services. So even for some small services for us, well, we've we've put the time into building these bigger patterns. So the investment isn't that much incrementally. So sometimes we do apply it to some small services because we know we get a a standard pattern in library and uh, just sort of a standard supportability the team knows how to work with. Awesome. Awesome. So as you've progressed down this this path leading to the containerization leading into microservices, you guys are now, I think, uh, I think a way ahead of the curve on the service mesh concept. 
do you mind sharing with everybody, you know, what is service mesh and why you decided that this was the the critical path? So service mesh essentially is this concept that when you have this level of containerization of your applications, you have the ability to inject into each of those containers on an automated basis what you might consider boilerplate functionality. So we're all familiar with the concept that every time a developer builds an application, they have to build stuff for authentication and logging and yada, 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 all the not fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And then for X amount, which they get to start to build their business functionality. The key innovation with service mesh is saying, okay, if you've put all of your stuff into containers and you have a container orchestration mechanism around those with this addition called the service mesh, you could actually into each of those containers start injecting all of that boilerplate code, which reduces the amount of custom code that each developer needs to develop. Now, that's a very sort of EA-centric way of looking at it. So I'm interested if Chris has a different perspective from a uh, from a more inverse inf- standpoint. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's one of the things we really like about it actually as well, because often we are figuring out if applications aren't writing authentication, kind of wraps that authentication or the encryption and all these other technologies, whether it be at load balancers or other infrastructure components. So beyond the developers not having to develop that functionality, Service Mesh lets us take the Kubernetes concept of sort of handing over a definitional file that developers can track and version control for their service and how it deploys in the environment and add in, again, more information about how do you authenticate to this service? Who do you trust to this service? Which other services do you trust? And that gets, we can, again, we can encapsulate it in code next to their services, and then we can drive it through pipelines and understand and prove things about it as well. So that, again, when we talk about guardrails, you know, if we know that we're looking for certain auth characteristics, we could look for that in the config files and make sure they're meeting those. But I think one of the other things that's interesting, and it's with the evolution of technology, you know, often you get really new complex technology, but it's often pretty hard to manage. And then you get to a point where it becomes easier to manage. And I think the jump from cloud to Kubernetes, interestingly, in a little bit of a ways for us, we weren't ready and we didn't apply Kubernetes to our regulated businesses at first. This is where we started actually by dipping our toe, like you were uh, suggesting, Patrick, on how people use the cloud. We did dip our toe into Kubernetes first on our uh, non-regulated businesses, understand how it works. In AWS, when we moved all our applications there, we moved to service to service, zero trust. We had micro segmentation saying, truly this service pool, this host pool, can only talk to these other host pools, uh, these dynamic pools based on ports. When we went down into Kubernetes, uh, applying network and service controls on that level within clusters was an extraordinarily complicated thing. And frankly, we, it wasn't one of the, the first problems we solved with Kubernetes. And as we looked at implementing it, you know, over time, we watched it grow. And service mesh has really come out of also, in addition to the things Derek was mentioning about how do you additionally enable applications? How do you get this really fine-grained inter-service control down into the cluster, but in a way where you can manage it on thousands of services, on hundreds of clusters down the road, potentially? So for me as an infrastructure geek, that was really appealing to us about service meshes. You know, how do we make sure we can get 
really fine-grained control all the way down to you know the most finite service level but automate that you know and, and codify it in the pipeline so that's for us uh, and i think one interesting thing you know we, we talked about service mesh but also part of you know what people are also partnering is you know how do we build api gateways as well how do we unify presentation of our applications more and i think that's that's part of what we've been seeing in, in our service mesh journey also as a really really exciting big thing too Awesome. I would love to ask about talent because in an earlier conversation, you shared with us that you had a significant increase in tech talent last year. And of course, now we're seeing a lot of tech firms, you know, laying people off. Can you help us understand what that looks like for Fitch Group? Sure. So, I mean, overall, uh, as you said, we we were actually, um, we grew about 30% last year and within our technology organization and staff, which is uh, tremendous growth. Um, we are going into 23 uh, with intent to continue hiring. I will say, um, you know, as private company and Hearst being a private company, we do have a longer term horizon, thankfully, in, in these sort of constrained market times, uh, the, these constrained macroeconomic times. So fortunately, we aren't seeing some of the uh, pain that our peers are. But what's interesting about that extraordinary growth is, you know, again, how do you how do you bring off that many people and make sure you can actually have them work and innovate in that period of time? And I think what was really cool and successful about this uh, 22 for us is uh, back in, I'm going to say it's Q4 of 2020, we started a major rollout of Agile across all of Fitch development. And Derek was uh, talking about this as well. How do you start breaking up really squads to focus on individual services and business problem areas? Uh, really focus them on those areas, and um, and for us, how do we build platforms and patterns that that again enable that? So, I think what was really cool is we had already done our microservice journey. We're, we're still on the service mesh journey, but this this microservice journey and this agile journey it really enabled us again to to give more responsibility to these groups, to give more freedom to these groups. So the huge hiring was often new squads spinning up a little bit of addition to squads and just how that's easier but new squads were able to spin up in new domains and we could give them their sandboxes we could give them their pipelines all very quickly in an automated way and it was that was huge for us in 22 i think it made a you know it made growth feasible and then of course you don't want people stuck early on so you know this is again how do we how do we keep our friction down so that they're innovating uh, quickly and um that was a, it was a really exciting year. Awesome. That's exciting stuff. What do you guys, what's the, what's the big plan for 2023? So part of what we got when we rolled out service mesh and our particular offering, we uh, went with a um, vendor uh, solo IO. There's the way I like to think about it is, um, you know, there's all these different distributions of Linux and folks know yeah, Linux itself is open source, but you could go with Red Hat or Ubuntu or whatever. Those are your bundlings of it. Same thing sort of goes with Service Mesh. There is sort of an open source de facto standard known as Istio, but there are different vendors that you can choose for your support and your extension and all that sort of stuff. Um, so Solo is the vendor we went with. Part of the value that we get from having services on the mesh is the fact that this bundling offers an API gateway that automatically or semi-automatically detects the endpoints for each of those services and gives us a nice interface we can use to 
expose those endpoints externally if we like. And a- we are one of the companies, one of the, one of the many companies that offers an API interface to our customers also. So we just did sort of a soft launch of our API, public-facing API portal. I think one of the things in 2023 that we want to do is really build that out and expand it. It does all sorts of nice things for our API customers, like building, um, it'll actually auto-generate the code for them so they can just get code and they can put it straight into their applications and be interacting with our data directly from their applications. But there's all sorts of things that can be done in terms of innovative products. You know, you can get into things like, you know, just charging for every use of the API, micro charges rather than monthly plans and all sorts mm-hmm. of interesting stuff there when you when you get an API portal. So to me, that's one of the more exciting things in 2023. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'll build off that to say that we will, um, you know, with the API portal, I think also super cool is the just making the documentation and APIs also available in a uniform way internally. So as developers come on, you know, the second phase of this is we'll be launching a lot of our internal services uh, behind an internal portal. And it's how do you, again, you know, how do you scale? How do you make available to your developers the knowledge and services you already have? So you're not, so you're spending time on on new functionality, not, um, not reinventing things because it wasn't clear that, that there was a really good pattern for this before. Well, it sounds like you got some big plans for 2023. Again, we wish you nothing but the best of luck. And thank you for taking the time to be on the show with us today and share your experience and your background. For the listeners out there who are interested in learning more, reach out, connect. Fitch is a big part of Chicago here, as well as New York, obviously. And so if you want to learn more, reach out to Derek and Chris. I'm sure they'd be happy to share. And, uh, Again, Derek, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick and Shelley. Patrick Shelley, great to talk to you. We also want to thank you, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.